Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. Right now, you can watch Spike Lee's Red Hook Summer and the unrated version of For a Good Time Call. Both movies are available weeks before DVD, Netflix, and Redbox. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on cable. The Art House is now in your house. From the studios of 111 Archer Avenue in New York City, this is Film Spotting, streaming video unit. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. And I'm not really sure what's coming up on this week's show, but I do know whatever it is, it will be scored by the music of the British Invasion as we review Bottle Rocket. Later, we'll bring you cue shots, our look at some of the current offerings on various streaming and VOD sites, all centered around a common theme. Inspired by Bottle Rocket, Matt was really campaigning to be allowed to read excerpts from his unpublished 65,000-word manuscript tentatively titled, The Darjeeling Really is Limited. Wes Anderson is not as good as you think he is. But then we realized we'd rather not sift through 65,000 angry emails. So instead, we're going to talk about heist films. But first up is Opening Break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight one title that's new on VOD and give you a rundown of some other notable films new on demand on cable. Allison, what is our first pick this week? Our first pick is Vamps, which is a horror comedy film from director Amy Heckerling that reunites her with her clueless star, Alicia Silverstone. Silverstone and Kristen Ritter play a pair of vampires living in New York and dealing with the exhaustion of being eternally young and going clubbing Mm. and trying to date eternally and having, you know, sex in the city style problems, I guess, forever. Uh, And also they drink rats. But uh, the they drink is, rats' blood. You mean? Yes. They don't. They don't, they don't blend the rats into some no, sort of protein drink. No, I think they, they they put like a straw on the rat. Okay. Okay. Can, I just wanted to be clear. You know, there are a lot of rats in New York. That's it's, true. It's a if pretty you're gonna, good source of uh, of blood. If you're going to live off of rat blood, really, there's no better place to live than New York City. <laughs> when you mention it. Yeah, and the film also brings in themes of nostalgia and aging. And you know, if people are going to complain about how New York changes and the neighborhoods change, just imagine being immortal. You'd have so much to complain about. <laughs> My name's Goody, and in 1841, I was bitten by a vampire. And that's Stacy. Hi, Stacy. When I was a day player, I was doing a lot of E. Look how cute she is. What are you doing? Don't you hate it when you sprout fangs, parts whitened, and the other parts dingy? Running around to clubs and dating idiots. Uh, a little bit won't hurt. Staying young is getting old. Morning. Morning. It got a small theatrical release two weeks ago. Mixed Very reception. Small. Yeah, Very mixed small. reception from the critics. Uh, but, you know, even if Heckerling isn't uh, doing on the same game these days, uh, you know, uh, as she was in her her heyday, uh, her last film, I Could Never Be Your Woman, was an ex- kind of high profile direct to DVD release. Mm-hmm. Um, this is still a woman, the woman who made Clueless and Fast Times at Ridgemont High. So right. I, I and she's reuniting still... with the star of Clueless, exactly. which is very interesting as well. Yeah, so it's something that I'm really interested in checking out. That is now available on demand uh, and also on DVD. Where do we stand on Clueless, Allison? Is it a masterpiece? Is it overrated? Is it underrated? I, lo- I love Clueless. Okay. I feel weird calling it a masterpiece just because... Why? I don't know, because its aims never seem to be towards masterpiece, you know? But I think it's, it's pretty perfect. But doesn't that make it kind of classic termite art masterpiece? It's like a, you know, unassuming masterpiece. Yeah, I know. It's hard for me to, it's so attached to like my 
youth as well that yes. it's hard for me to separate it. Yeah. Uh, no. It's a movie that I've probably, although I never think of it in this way, I've probably seen that movie more than a lot of movies. Yeah, you know, there's too. the there's the upper echelon for me, which is like Ghostbusters and Spaceballs, movies I watched as a kid right. and then kept watching my whole life. And then Clueless came out when we were sort of entering teenagerdom. And I saw it a lot. That movie used to be on cable all the time. Yeah. I, I know a lot of the lines. <laughs> a lot of the lines. So I'm curious to see that as well. So when, one more time, where is when is it premiering on VOD? It's currently available. It's already on, available. Yeah, on demand and, uh, and on DVD. Okay, great. We've got a few other recommended titles for you this week. The first up is one I've actually seen. It's called Head Games, directed by Steve James, the great documentary filmmaker. This one premieres on VOD on November 20th. It's a documentary about the dangers of chronic, traumatic, and cephalopathy which is essentially the destruction of your brain from repeated blows to the head, and specifically in the context of contact sports. So we're talking football, hockey, and even soccer, actually, even though that's not often thought of as a violent sport. You think about it, how many times in a game people hit the ball with their head oh, yeah. without a helmet on. Yeah. Every single one of those shots, you're killing brain cells. And the idea is that in these sports, people are really potentially – damaging their their quality of life in later years and and this is a field that's really just starting to grow and we're really just starting to understand how potentially dangerous these sports might be to people's lives i mean they play for however many years and then by the time they're in their 40s they have the brains a lot of these uh, former players have the brains of like 60 or 70 year olds because they've just taken so many blows to the head. So the film is about this and about this issue, which is really developing. It's not Steve James's best documentary by any stretch of the imagination. He's certainly made better films and better films about sports. But I think it's a really important issue. I mean, I would recommend especially for parents who have young kids and are thinking about entering their kids in Pop Warner or something. I'm not telling you what to do, but I think it's worth watching and thinking about this sort of thing because clearly this is a – this is a pretty serious issue. So that's Head Games, and that's uh, going to be available on VOD on November 20th. And we've got one more recommended title for you. It's called The Fitzgerald Family Christmas, written, directed, and starring a friend of uh, Film Spotting Original Recipe, Edward Burns. This is his new film. It stars Edward Burns along with Carrie Bechet and Connie Britton, my beloved Mrs. Coach from Friday Night Lights, uh, now on Nashville, a new show. Um, so the, the plot description, uh, we haven't seen this film yet. It goes like this. The adult siblings of the Fitzgerald family prepare for their estranged father to return home for Christmas for the first time since he walked out on his family 20 years ago. And Edward Burns is uh, – I mean if you've heard him talk about this kind of stuff on film spotting or seen him do interviews, he's really – Kind of uh, even as he's doing bigger movies as an actor, he, we, uh, we just saw him in Alex Cross, where he played uh, Alex Cross's partner. So he, right. he's still acting, but his indie, his his filmmaking as a director has kind of returned very much to its indie roots. Now he makes these very small movies with very small budgets, shoots them with friends around New York, and makes them on on a real shoestring, and releases them kind of in a sort of trailblazing way on VOD on iTunes. He he's sort of. Um, He's not too precious about that theatrical release, and it seems to be working for him. He's done this for his last few films, and it's really he really has embraced social media and uh, these alternative distribution channels, and it's it's doing really well. This movie sounds kind of interesting in the fact that he says that to sort of enhance the family vibe of it, he actually cast one actor from each of his ten prior movies. That's in this movie, yeah. I guess. So that is the Fitzgerald Family Christmas. That'll be available on VOD on November 21st, and it's going to open in theaters on December 7th. So this week we are talking about heist movies, and uh, it's a pretty classic genre of film these days, and kind of bleeds into 
con movies, bleeds into superhero movies sometimes. Bleeds into New York movies, which was our last topic. A lot of the movies we discussed on last week's show could have also applied here and vice versa. I know I picked across 110th Street. That would certainly fit. There right. was a few others that we mentioned. That are yeah, both Inside York, Man. That's a Inside Man, movie, absolutely. Definitely. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, yeah it kind of goes hand in hand with New York movies as well. Yeah, uh, and, you know, it's something that as because it's so ingrained the kind of language of a heist movie that there's the uh i feel like movies have done interesting things like inception a heist movie basically if a crazy you know heist movie taking place in dreams do you have any uh any general thoughts on heist movies matt well i just think it's kind of interesting that from like a morality standpoint the heist film it's kind of like the inheritor almost of the classic gangster movie you know where the gangster or the criminal is the hero you know for the most part heist movies are told from the perspective of the the criminals. They're the ones who are the heroes of the movies. And it's hard. I was trying to think of what are some heist movies where the cops are the heroes. And there mm-hmm. aren't a ton. Uh, maybe Inside Man to some degree because the cops are – they're sort of shared. There's no real villain there. It's sort of like right. the, the cops vi- – The villain is Christopher Plummer. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Spoiler alert for Inside <laughs> Man. But like the, the, the people who are robbing the bank in Inside Man, they're not quite – the they're antagonists, yeah. but they're not necessarily villains. Right, exactly. Yeah. And maybe you could maybe say Die Hard, perhaps. Mm, Although yeah. in that movie, it doesn't really feel like a heist movie until later on when you realize what they're doing. It seems like a terrorist movie, you know, right. or a hostage movie until later. Spoiler alert for Die Hard. <laughs> Let's just spoil a whole bunch of movies. So I thought that's kind of interesting because, you know, the, the vast majority of cinema that's about cops and, and crime usually has the cops as the heroes. But in heist movies, it's almost always the reverse that there's this sort of like Robin hood aspect to heist movies where it's okay to steal things. If you're like handsome and you have a good sense of humor about it, you're stylish about if it. You're very, yes. If yeah. you have a certain savoir faire about the way you go about your duties. Right. Yes. That, that makes it almost permissible. Like we as an audience will tolerate criminality as long as it's coming at the expense of yes, style and, and being very handsome, which yeah. is kind of interesting. Like in the, in the scope of what we will accept as crime, like we almost don't see robbery as a crime. Right. Well, it's interesting. If you're, if you're good looking. If you're good looking or have like, you make really good, uh, the stuff of really good movies, then it's okay. Yeah. But also, I mean, I feel like heist, heist movies are, some of them end triumphantly, right? They pull off the heist and yay. And uh, mm-hmm. everyone walks through Las Vegas listening to uh, music and looking at the Bellagio fountain. Right. Uh, but then other times, you know, there's, there's that sense of tragedy, especially like the one last heist kind of tragedy mm. that like you're not getting out the right time that you're kind of tempting fate. And so, you know, there's, there's often like some of the films, like I looked at, like they're kind of shadowed with that sense of like impending doom, mm. right? That this is not the right, the last heist should not be done. That's almost like a subgenre of a subgenre is there's the heist movies. And then there's the one last job heist movies, which you're right, tend to be more tragic because never say you're going, <laughs> yeah. you need one last job because that one last job will almost never work out well for you because you're right. That, 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 that is a classic, basically a cliche at this point. When I was looking, because we try to, you know, you don't need me to tell you, watch Ocean's Eleven. That's a good heist movie. Because I think most people listening probably have seen it, or at least they've heard of it. So as I was looking for ones that were off the beaten path, I kind of noticed that some of the less famous ones, which are still good, a lot of them are kind of darker. That the, that it's interesting because heist movies that are successful tend to be successful heists. The ones that people embrace are the ones where the, the criminals get away with it, that are happy, that we don't actually...
actually want to see the criminals punished that much. So when we go to heist movies that are darker, that are sadder, a lot of them are the ones that become cult favorites or they're artistically successful but weren't very popular at the box office. So audiences really do seem to embrace the ones where the criminals can be fun and, and get away with it. That the movies that they tend to stay away from, at least on a mainstream like mass audience scale, they tend to be the ones that are kind of sad. Like, we don't want to see the sad criminals, which I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, you want to see, after all that planning, all that work, that skill, you want to see them pull it off. Right. All right. So, Allison, what's uh, what's your first heist film you want to recommend? I feel like this this is a fairly well-known film, but I think it's one that does some interesting, is, is in, in an interesting conversation with heist films in general, which is uh, Sexy Beast, the 2000 film uh, from Jonathan Glazer. You can rent it on iTunes, Vudu, Blockbuster, and Amazon. Uh, Jonathan Glazer was you know best known for his music videos before this point. This was his first film. He's since done Birth, and I think he has a new one that's uh, wrapped recently. Uh, but, you know, this film, from one, for, from one perspective, it also deals specifically with what haunts many heist films, which is retirement, right? That one last heist. One last you heist. You finally get out of this dangerous life. The main character, who is a safecracker played by Ray Winston, is enjoying his retirement in Spain in true Englishman in Spain fashion, you know, lying out in the sun and going in the pool and hanging out with his two closest friends. And he has legitimately no interest in coming back. He does not miss this life. He does not miss you know london or the thrill of things he does not romanticize it he's done and it takes you know ben kingsley's character don this great profane rage-filled role who he arrives like a resentful ex you know and kind of like badgers ray winston's character into coming back but uh he doesn't want to, you know, like not to give away what happens, but like it is not because he's like um, the lure of, of one last gig that pulls him back in. What's the worst thing that can happen? What's the worst scenario? It's going to come here. Ask me. I'm going to say no. Do the job. No, Don. Yes. No. Yes. No. Yes. I can't. You can. I can't. Don't do this. Do what? What am I doing? This. This? This what? I think that also what's so interesting about this film is that it has this this take on gangster culture that's, it's like so macho, it's homoerotic. Um, like, you know, like this is a film where the heist, that like kind of climactic heist, which is much less important than the convincing, the ramp up to the heist and the convincing, takes place in a bathhouse mm-hmm. with like a lot of guys in... Um, underwater and uh working in in you know bathing suits and then the the main crime lord who instigates the heist teddy played by ian mcshane he learns about it about this bank vault uh from the bank ceo who it's implied banged him at a sex party and then the whole heist becomes this kind of weird revenge for that or like kind of answering to that like that he will kind of uh metaphorically screw the bank owner by breaking into his bank, his like amazing bank vault. The film has like such really interesting twists on these classic ideas of like, uh, of, of, of gangsters and going, like going and getting the team together for this heist. It undoes a lot of the usual expectations uh, and, you know, is based around this like incredible Ben Kingsley performance that, uh, is unforgettable once you see it and also just filled with so much profanity it's a uh, kind of i feel like it must be record-breaking in some way so that's sexy beast it is available for rent on itunes amazon voodoo and blockbuster all right my first pick for you is kansas city confidential 
1952 film. It's available on Netflix. Watch instantly. And this is really just one of the nastiest, grittiest film noirs that I've ever seen. And I really like how uh, Dave Kerr from the New York Times describes the movie in terms of its creators as, quote, a meeting point for the up and coming and the down and out. So it was, it was directed by Phil Carlson, a gifted filmmaker who had recently graduated from Poverty Row Studio Monogram, and it starred John Payne, a popular crooner of the 1940s who was working his way down from Technicolor musicals at 20th Century Fox. And there is a, a little bit of sense of desperation to the movie and, and sadness and frustration, and, and that's reflected in the characters and maybe a little bit on the faces of the actors that are involved. I saw this movie for the first time in college. The film itself is in the public domain, so this was a movie you could often find when you would go to like Best Buy or one of those stores. They would sell those box sets of public domain movies and you'd pay eight dollars and you'd get 14 movies and the print would be horrible and the sound was bad but you you know you you wanted to see the movie so you'd kind of suffer through it but now i I, someone restored the movie and put it on uh, netflix and it looks fantastic the movie streaming on netflix looks infinitely better than uh, than when i first saw it on uh on dvd years ago so i really actually loved watching it again for the first time in a while on netflix where it looked so good Uh, The reason that I was interested in it in college is the film's particular claim to fame. This movie was a very big influence on another famous heist film. Allison, do you know which film that might be? I do not. Quentin Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs. And that's because in Kansas City Confidential, the main gangster's plan for a quote-unquote perfect crime, another classic heist film trope, involves the henchmen of his all wearing masks. So they don't know each other's identities, so they can't finger each other if the thing goes bad. And in this case, the plan goes off perfectly. They are successful in their heist, but the way that they pull it off is by essentially getting a van that looks just like another van and robbing this place. And the the owner of the original van becomes the main suspect because it looks like he must have been involved because of their plan. And so he almost takes the fall. He almost goes to jail for all of this. And as a result, he kind of wants revenge. So then he, following this these clues, decides to try to infiltrate the gang and kind of get his revenge on the guys who set him up, sort of unwittingly. Look, I gotta get the Barados. That wire means 300 grand to me. You're cut. Who set it up? I don't know. Look, we didn't have nothing against you. We didn't even know you. It just fell that way. Lucky me. Who else was in on it? I don't know that either. We all four of us wore masks. I thought there were only three. Three and the big guy. Look, look, I'm giving it to you straight. That's the way it was planned. We all did business with a mask. He could know us, but none of us could know him. Get it? None of us could squeal that way if one of us didn't get away. There are a lot of heist movies and film noir movies kind of like this. What sets this one apart, what I really like about it, is A, the dialogue. There's some wonderful lines, including this one about the philosophy of life, uh, courtesy of the movie, which is that sometimes it's tough and sometimes it's too tough. (laughs) Um, Some wonderful actors, some character actors in this movie, uh, John Payne, Jack Elam, and Lee Van Cleef, a young Lee Van Cleef, before his spaghetti western heyday, as one of the anonymous uh, henchmen. 
it's kind of interesting because the faces of these guys are so great and sweaty and and frantic and yet you know the whole gimmick of the movie is that they're wearing masks a lot of the time which is sort of a strange kind of ironic twist so that's kansas city confidential and that's available on netflix Okay, my next pick is also available streaming on Netflix. It is Stander, 2003 film directed by Canadian filmmaker Bronwyn Hughes. It's based on the true story of South African police officer turned bank robber Andre Stander, who's played by Thomas Jane. And actually a really good performance considering, I don't know if Thomas Jane is someone who ever leaps out at you as like the guy who, you know, can really carry a film that way. But it's a, it really shows off his strengths. Uh, Stander is, uh, is working during, uh, it, when the film starts in the 70s, he's put on riot duty. Um, it's the apartheid era and there are a lot of protests and riots. Um, and he's been kind of a quiet supporter of ending apartheid. So uh, he gets so disillusioned with uh, the work he's doing. And he ends up accidentally shooting an unarmed protester. There's so much guilt over this that he, uh, he, he decides that with all this turmoil, like a white man could get away with anything, basically, because the police are so tied up in um, enforcing apartheid and like kind of trying to... Uh, you know, keep down these riots. So he kind of spur of the moment robs a bank. Doesn't really disguise himself all that well, but mm-hmm. he robs a bank, and uh, and it works. And so, so disillusioned is he with the system that he starts robbing banks more, even to the point where sometimes he uh, he has to respond to the crime as a cop after he has just robbed the bank. Eventually, people figure out his identity, and he goes on to form a gang and rob more banks. Oh no, it's been a bad day. You okay now? Uh, I'm sure, miss. Been through this over and over. But could you tell me exactly what she saw? You. Me. I mean, <laughs> I don't know what I mean. It's just he was, you know, like you. Want to take me in, Captain? <laughs> you know, you're saying, Matt, that like these films often depend on us cheering for the bad guy. And mm-hmm. it starts off with you really do. Like there's he's kind of sparked by this rebellion against this lousy system. Uh, he's, you know, kind of this Robin Hood character. Yep. Uh, and then it goes on. And you're like, actually, he just really likes to risk and he really likes these outrageous he he likes robbing banks you Mm -hmm. know and it gets further and further away from that initial disgust that motivated him uh and it becomes you know he also gets more and more he becomes more and more dangerous and he puts himself more and more at risk uh so i and jane i think handles this transition really well he's uh got a kind of like really great physical presence that uh it works here and um it's a character who's very complicated and doesn't necessarily look that way initially. So it's a really interesting movie um, in its portrayal of heists as well. And uh, in, in the kind of like almost the comical ease of them sometimes it's uh, it's, it's really worth, lo- worth a look. So that is Stander and it is available for streaming on Netflix. That's a good pick. I like that movie too. I remember that was one of the first movies I ever covered when we both started working at IFC. It came out right around that time. And that was yeah. one of the first ones I wrote about. That's a good, it's a good little movie. And that you're right, that figure, it's, it's another sort of heist film trope is like the lapsed cop. 
yeah. the former cop, the fallen from grace cop. And there's, But there's almost this sense in a lot of these movies that it's like once you've been a cop and you've witnessed and endured the corruption that's apparently inevitable in all police <laughs> departments, it's almost permissible then. You've done your duty as a selfless officer of the law in a way that's sort of, you know – It'll never work out, so you might as well become a, a criminal now. Time to cash in. Yes, exactly. You've paid your dues, and now it's time to steal those dues from a bank. Exactly. Yeah. All right. My next pick is a another very dark twist on the heist movie. Definitely not for fans of the, the, the poppier heist movie. If you're looking for a little more cynical twist on it, this movie will definitely suit you. It's called The Friends of Eddie Coyle from 1973. This is available if you're an Amazon Prime member, you can watch this one for free on streaming. You can also rent it there. And it's directed by Peter Yates, who just a few years before this did another heist film, which I absolutely love, called The Hot Rock, which is unfortunately not available for streaming anywhere. That's one of my favorite kind of light heist movies. This is almost like the opposite bookend side of things. This is the dark This is the dark side. This is the doppelganger of that movie, where instead of it being a heist movie about buddies doing these robberies and it's all light and fun and there's honor among thieves, this movie explodes that idea that there's honor among thieves. There's no honor among thieves. There's no honor among anyone. And the title itself, The Friends of Eddie Coyle, is very kind of winking and ironic because Eddie Coyle essentially has no friends. And really what you get the sense of in this movie is that criminals have no friends they just have people who will betray them they think they're their friends but inevitably they will all rat each other out because it's all about essentially the idea that at a certain point friendship honor whatever you want to call it that all becomes irrelevant when self-preservation is on the line so eddie coyle is played by robert mitchum in this great performance this is from sort of the period in his career he's still Mitchum, he's getting older, though, and so you have this wonderful kind of balance between the menace and the intensity that he brought to his roles, but there's also kind of this sense of sadness and exhaustion that's creeping in around the edges of the performance, because he's, he's getting older, and the character is facing this jail term for a heist that went bad, and basically the only way he can stay out of prison at this point is by ratting out his quote-unquote friends, but the thing is, things are getting so desperate where the, uh, in Boston where the movie is set and was shot that basically it's a it's now like a competition who can rat out each other quick enough it's like a race to the bottom and basically whoever is left is just going to be the person who rats out the most people what makes it hurt worse what makes it hurt more is knowing what's going to happen to you you know there you are they just come up to you and say look you made somebody mad you made a big mistake and now there's somebody doing time for it there's nothing personal in it you understand but it just has to be done now get your hand out there you think about not doing it, you know? When I was a kid in Sunday school, this nun, she used to say, stick your hand out. I stick my hand out, whap, she knocked me across the knuckles with a steel edge ruler. So one day I says, when she told me, stick your hand out, I says, no. She whapped me right across the face with the ruler, same thing. It's, it's a really sad movie. It is an amazingly powerful movie because it is about mortality and just the really sad desperate nature of the criminal life you know all of these heist movies as we've said a lot of them really glorify the glamorous side of of being a criminal and this movie really explodes that and it's just a beautifully sad depressing movie about what happens to criminals they get to the end of their careers and there's not too many happy endings there it's you go to jail or you die, basically. Um, and one more Tarantino connection, since we're making a lot of them. There is a character in the film named Jackie Brown. So that is The Friends of Eddie Coyle. 
and it's available on Amazon. I'm glad you mentioned that movie. I like that a lot. And Mitchum yeah. is great. It is an it. awesome, awesome movie. All right. My last pick is uh, another influential one. Uh, it's had a lot of influence on a recent film. It's uh, Thief, the 1981 film directed by Michael Mann, currently streaming on Netflix. Um, the film that this has had a, a very large influence on is Nicholas Vindingreffen's Drive. Mm-hmm. Surprisingly, so I'm like, you know, I hadn't seen this for a while. And like going back and looking at it a bit, like, it's really like they're structurally Shameless. so yeah so similar i thought khan you know like his scorpion jacket i thought that was iconic i didn't think anyone else could pull that off but i was wrong <laughs> yeah it's really uh it's remarkable right, maybe, um, I may, might have made that up. right but uh you know the structure and the mood are very similar mm-hmm. uh it's a little james khan is not quite the uh the you know uh dreamboat that <laughs> ryan gosling is in that movie but uh he is a, he is very interesting as he plays frank who is a jewel thief um in Chicago, who instead of a driver, he's a lot earthier. He's uh, an ex-con. He's you know pretty. He's good at what he does, but his bal- the balance of his life gets interrupted um, when his fence gets killed, and he ends up getting involved with uh, this mobster named Leo, played by Robert Prosky, who is really like this very paternal-looking, soft-spoken, nice guy who naturally does not turn out to be quite as uh, as caring as he first appears. Turns out to be much more dangerous than that. But you know, Khan is in classic heist fashion. He is just trying to earn enough money to lead a normal suburban life. He actually has this collage that he's made of all of the things he wants in his life, including, you know, at this point, what he wants is a wife and child. And he uh, latches onto this character played by Tuesday Weld and convinces her, despite certain red flags, to uh, to join him in this dream. Uh, and then, of course, it all goes to hell. What the hell do you think that I do? Come on, come on. Come on. Every morning I walk in for five months, say hi. What the hell do you think that I do? You sell little f***ing cars. That's what you do. I wear $150 slacks. I wear silk shirts. I wear $800 suits. I wear a gold watch. I wear a perfect D, flawless, three-carat ring. I change cars like other guys change their f***ing shoes. I'm a thief. I've been in prison, all right? So what? I don't care. So what? Don't tell me. So what? I never even told my wife that. I don't Who care. Who is now born? Michael Mann few few filmmakers are as kind of naturally like sleekly stylish as michael mann and he has made this film that just uh and with music by tangerine dream it's very um it has this very moody i mean like very of its of its era but like very moody dark feel and uh what's interesting about the film is also how it's kind of turned towards the end in drive. There's something very romantic about the turn. It's like, yes, it's this, he's going to sacrifice his happiness right, right. for the sake. And in this case, it's like, he's, he's just letting go of this lifelong dream. Instead, this dream that he could be not a criminal, that he would have this, this normalized life and that you could really just step away from the life of crime and then have this American dream type. And he has to kind of let that go in a way that's, really sad mm-hmm. um this is a film that has a real kind of air of of sadness and doom to it that is thief it is streaming on netflix all right that's another very good pick our last pick this week was one we actually fought over we both we did wanted to do it. this one so this is like a double recommendation <laughs> right here this one gets the film spotting svu 
good housekeeping stamp of <laughs> approval or something. Probably not that, since I'm sure that's trademarked. But the film is called Quick Change. It is available on Amazon, iTunes, and Vudu. It's from 1990 and directed by Howard Franklin and one Bill Murray. And come on, if we're going to do an episode where we're going to review a Wes Anderson movie, granted he's not in that one, but we got to talk about Bill Murray somewhere (laughs) in here, right? And what we have here is one of the most interesting movies of Bill Murray's career, I think. And certainly from the period before he became Wes Anderson's guy. Yeah, he wasn't quite the, the kind of metaphorical sad clown yet. Well, right, because in the movie, what happens, Allison? He becomes a literal sad clown. He dresses, in the, as the movie begins, he's dressed as a clown as part of this ingenious plan to rob a bank. And he robs the bank, dressed as a clown with a whole bunch of uh, dynamite strapped to his chest. And I actually think that's one of the things that makes it so interesting, is that this movie was made in 1990 when he, Bill Murray was really one of the biggest stars in the world. And, and he was sort of at the height of his, his comedy career. But what you sense in the movie is this kind of nagging sense of desperation and frustration with that typecasting. And the movie is about – mostly it's about what happens after the heist. The heist goes off perfectly, but then trying to get out of New York City becomes this endless uh, frustration for Bill Murray and his two sidekicks who are played by Gina Davis and Randy Quaid. And I sort of see in that this kind of metaphorical, like, I can't escape my tragic clown thing, you know, that I, I, I almost <laughs> feel like it's Bill Murray kind of getting frustrated with being Bill Murray. And it, even though it's a really great anti-New York movie, we did our New York podcast last time this time this is a movie where it's like new york is awful and it's just all these wonderfully hilarious and fairly accurate kind of negative portrayals of new york of the people on the bus and the crazy bus drivers and the the people at the bodega who are you know uh, taking forever online and and just the frustrations of what it's like to live in new york when things are going bad but on a metaphorical level, I also feel like it's Bill Murray kind of struggling with what it was like to be Mo- Bill Murray in 1990 and being unable to escape being the clown, you know? Uh, and then a few years later, he was lucky enough to meet Wes Anderson, who provided the the uh, metaphorical escape anyway. In terms of the heist, I think we should mention at least that this is a really great heist scene in this movie. It's really fun and really clever. And I don't think we should spoil how they pull it all off, but it's a really great Maybe the best heist scene of any of the movies we've discussed. Although there's there's some good ones in the Friends of Eddie Coyle also. The man is an animal. I'm ripping out folds, urinating on desks. You see what he did to Miss Cochran's shirt? There's a scratch here. I mean, it's not deep, but it's there. It's okay. He hurt anybody else? Is the strain beginning to show on him? If I can sleep ten days and nights in a rice paddy, I could certainly last in this lousy bank. This is what the animal said to us. He says to Miss Cochran here, Baby, up your butt with a coconut. I think he was prepared to do it. Except I saw no coconut. Yeah, he had no coconut to bite out. No coconut. Bill Murray is in, in rare form. Definitely a great performance. And it's a, it's a great movie. It was not a hit. It was definitely one of these, like, passion projects. Murray was the co-director. He was also the producer. Clearly, it was like a labor of love for him. And it didn't pan out. He never directed again, which I feel like is a shame because the movie is actually pretty well directed. It's nicely paced. And it's a, it's a nice little movie that uh, deserves to be more widely seen. So that's Quick Change. It's available on Amazon, iTunes, and Vudu. And before we go, just wanted to mention two of our previous recommendations. So on earlier episodes, we've mentioned these movies. They are heist movies, so I thought we would just very quickly say, 
Charlie Varick is available on Netflix, and Bob LaFlambeur is available on Hulu. Okay, sit down, sit down. Get up against the wall. What's in here? What's in here? Where's the money? Where's the money? Talk, stretch. It's, it's in, in the drawer. Okay, there it is. Come on, open up that drawer. No, it's not. Come on. The, the other one. Let's go. Where's the money? Okay. But put one of those back. Get one of those back. Let's move. Come on. A bigger one, you idiot. What do you Don't think? Don't call me an idiot, you punk. Do you, have a, do you have bigger bags for atlases or dictionaries, uh, sir? It was a pretty close vote for last week's listener's choice. Not for Ali Fear Eats the Soul, admittedly, which <laughs> came in last with 19% of the vote. Sorry, Fassbender fans. Maybe next time. But the other two finalists were pretty close. It was fairly neck and neck. Allison, I think you and I were kind of not so secretly rooting for Lockout to win, just so we would have an excuse, a legitimate job-related excuse to rewatch. Space Jail, as we call it, one more time before the end of the year. Now we'll have to do it in our free time. Alas, it's 39% of the vote lost to Bottle Rocket, which won with a slim 2% margin. It got 41% of the vote at filmspottingsvu.com. Now, the title of Bottle Rocket refers to a particular kind of firework, which are set off at several points during the film. So let's use that image and that metaphor to kick off our discussion this week, Allison. Bottle Rocket was the first of Wes Anderson's seven feature films to date. From Bottle Rocket, he went on to even greater acclaim with Rushmore. And from there to The Royal Tenenbaums, The Life Aquatic, The Darjeeling Limited, Fantastic Mr. Fox, and most recently, Moonrise Kingdom. While that film scored rave reviews and impressive arthouse box office, I'm wondering, Allison, whether you think Anderson's career itself might be comparable to a Bottle Rocket. Do you think that after his initial brilliant flash, he's begun to fizzle out a little bit, perhaps? And do you think that the firework that is his unique career really exploded with Bottle Rocket, or did that only come later with some of his bigger and more well-known films? Well, I really liked Moonrise Kingdom, and I liked Fantastic Mr. Fox as well. So I think that he's been pretty steady in terms of his output. I think looking at Bottle Rocket, which... Yeah, you had not seen before, but this I had seen, I had not seen before. and was revisiting. Just It's still surprising how many of his favorite stylistic choices uh, are there already. They are there in place and have only kind of become more more prominent as, as they've gone along. So I don't know. I think that he, at least in terms of the quality of the films, is still is still pretty you know, pretty leveled out. Um, He's not the most prolific filmmaker in the world, certainly, but I I think that he has, he has a vision and he is stuck to it. And if that vision doesn't work for you, uh, I know he's not your favorite filmmaker in the world. I I can see how the fact that he has not been one to kind of choose a lot of variety Mm -hmm. could be frustrating, Mm -hmm. but I, I am a big Wes Anderson fan. And I think that, I, I love what he does, and I like the variations on it that he has put out throughout his career. So, I mean, he kind of came up in that class of filmmakers in the 90s, um, like Alexander Payne, other Sofia Coppola. Uh, and I think that 
he is like the one that I really was attached to at that time, and I still am a fan. And where would you rank this one? I mean, is, do you do you hold this one in, in high regard along with the greats of his career? I know. I think yeah. Roy, I know. I shouldn't say I know. Royal Tenenbaums. I'm pretty sure is still your favorite, still right? Favorite, so yeah. where does this one rank? Would you like my rankings? Of yeah, all the actually, movies? I bet people would want to hear that. Let's hear it. Well, I posted this on Twitter like a while ago. Okay, so just for a record. Well, then it has okay. to be true, this and it can't from, be taken back. That from, is yeah, exactly from Twitter to stone. Okay, from, let's hear uh, it from top to, top to bottom. Yes, Royal Tenenbaums, Fantastic Mr. Fox. Rushmore, The Life Aquatic, Moonrise Kingdom, Bottle Rocket, The Darjeeling Limited. Oh, so Bottle Rocket you have down towards the bottom. Yes. Okay. So what what about it do you think not doesn't quite hold up for you or isn't doesn't quite put it in the upper echelon of the Anderson catalog? Well, I think that it it does uh foreshadow a lot of the things that you know come around to his films, including the kind of I mean, like I would say what Wes Anderson always tries to capture is this sensation of basically being back at your parents' house, maybe over the holidays, and like sorting through your, the, like your, the, your childhood things, mm-hmm. right, and feeling kind of melancholy about it. Mm-hmm. That I, and I think that sentiment doesn't really come through in Bottle Rocket, though it has kind of touches of that. You know, you have a main character who has committed himself to uh, starts off having committed himself to a mental asylum. They've, there's this kind of sense of two people who have been lifelong friends who will eventually are kind of going to drift apart, you know? Uh, I think that it still, it is, it's quirkier in a way that doesn't work for me as opposed to his other films. Like it reminds me of Napoleon Dynamite much more than any of his other work. Interesting. Uh, And it it kind of, it, it has as much in common with that sensibility as I would say it does with his later work. So I have never liked it as much as most of his other things. Uh, so I'm very curious to hear what you think of this. As someone who is not an Anderson I'm devotee. Dragging out the suspense. Yeah. Did you like this film? I did. You did like I this did film. I did like this film. Wow. And I don't I don't have a, a ranking of Wes Anderson's films. I certainly haven't put one on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean, for me, Rushmore is the one I've always loved the most. And to me, I've sort of had diminishing returns with each one after that. I might just put them that way. Like one, each movie was like, I liked less. So like I'd have Royal Tenenbaums below that and then whatever came next. And I haven't seen Moonrise Kingdom yet, actually. I have it at home. I have the disc of it at home waiting to be watched. But uh, I haven't watched that one yet, so I can't weigh in on that. But I didn't even really care for Fantastic Mr. Fox. And I I haven't really, you know, discounting Moonrise Kingdom, which I haven't seen yet. I haven't really enjoyed one of his films in three or four films at this point. But I like this one. And I, I, you know, you said that it reminds you of his later movies. And certainly there are things about it that I recognized from his later movies. But I liked the stuff that I didn't recognize. And I liked the fact that it felt like a first movie to me. You get a sense that Wes Anderson is not the great director yet. You get a sense that the Wilson brothers aren't great actors yet, necessarily. And I like something about it. Sometimes I find that about first films. I find that quality very appealing, you know, because when you don't know necessarily the right way to make something, I often find you're more willing to experiment and you're more willing to try things and you get more of this kind of loose, free feeling to the movie. And I got that out of Bottle Rocket. I really got that sense that Wes Anderson was not, with big quotes, Wes Anderson yet. And so the things about his aesthetic that later becomes so rigid and so codified, sometimes to his detriment in my eyes, they weren't here, or at least when they were here, they were a little more relaxed. They didn't feel quite so 
obligatory, which I think they – like when I see some of his later movies, I almost feel like he's going through the motions, that it feels like he's making a Wes Anderson movie first before he's making a movie, you know? And I didn't necessarily feel that way about this movie. But then when those very Andersonian touches come in, like the slow-mo speed ramp at the very end of the movie as Owen Wilson's character is walking away for the final time, that shot really like punched me right in the gut. Like I felt it. That There was like emotions there. It wasn't just a tick, a stylistic tick or a stylistic uh, cliche. That felt powerful to me. That was what I liked about it. There were things – I didn't love it. I wouldn't call it his best movie by far. I would probably put it in the middle, closer to the top, you know, maybe third, something like that after Rushmore and Royal Tenenbaums. But I, I liked it. I did enjoy it. Can I ask you one practical question I yes, had about it? please. Why do these guys commit robberies? Why? Well, I mean, like, they don't seem yeah. interested in money. No, they're not really drawn to like the criminal life. They don't watch pop culture or movies about criminals where you go, oh, they've become obsessed. They don't they fetishize these movies and they want to act like the characters they've seen in movies. So, I mean, obviously, they're interested in being kind of cliched, kind of dangerous, I guess, or they're interested in this idea of freedom and adventure. But why why rob people? What I'd never for one second understood that. As much as I enjoyed the movie, I was was occasionally going, Why are they doing this? Well, I don't think Luke Wilson's character is interested in robbing at all. I think he's doing it to indulge his Big friend. Yeah. True. I I think that Owen Wilson's character is just obsessed with it as an idea of masculinity. You know, like he's got some very odd sensibilities anyway, from the jumpsuit he wears to I mean the whole kind of strange idea of like becoming a criminal and I like idolizing James Caan again, in his second <laughs> appearance on this podcast yes. uh, as a landscaper slash uh, criminal mastermind. Figure, yeah. Yeah. But uh, you know, I think that I, you know, there's that scene where he gets beat up at the bar mm-hmm. and immediately afterwards he wants to like hotwire a car or steal a car, you know, like there's that real sense that he's actually like, if there is like a kind of more objective reality, it was like a really like, He's an outcast who's been beat up a lot, you know, mm-hmm. but that like he is latched onto this vision of uh, of a criminal life and as ridiculous as it is and as as it has nothing to do with actual, you know, like the getting of money. I guess I didn't really appreciate I mean, of the things I liked about it, that was not one of them that what you just described, I can sort of accept, but it also feels pretty phony to yeah. me. Like it doesn't it feels like an excuse to make some admittedly very funny heist scenes like the, the two big heists in this movie are hilarious. Yeah. I enjoyed both of them immensely. But I also felt like Owen Wilson's character at times, especially when it became about crime. I mean, I didn't really feel like I got a very good handle on him. And I don't think his performance is all that great. No. Um, I, I like Owen Wilson a lot. I think he got a lot better. Same thing with Luke Wilson. As I was saying, like they don't feel like they've quite mastered the acting side of things quite yet. So there's sort of some rough things about it. And I actually like the relationship between them. That felt genuine, you know, even though they're playing friends and not brothers, even though they look and sound <laughs> like siblings which right. is sort of strange um i like them together a lot but i didn't necessarily the, the 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 crime aspect of it at least the reasons for it i don't think you're supposed to really think too hard about that i think it's you really kind of just supposed to kind of go along with this whimsical ride which i admit i have to admit i did sort of do more than i expected to and there were there were a lot of scenes that i did enjoy it's a hard movie to, to dislike i mean it, yeah they're I mean, very likable and whimsical it's like yeah yeah and it has a lot of enthusiasm and energy and it has these very likable characters and they are very sweet i mean it's hard to dislike these guys i mean they're robbing people but doing that in such a kind of 
they're sweet. Away, yeah, really. they're so wholesome yeah. about it. You know, they even though they it's almost I always it almost feels weird that they have a gun that there actually is a gun involved in this movie. Not that they're shooting people, but that there is an actual gun on hand. They just seem like they shouldn't carry guns. Like it should be against their ethos of like charmingness or something. Yeah, and I do like the romance in this with uh, Inez, who is the yes. the maid at a hotel. I think yeah. like it's really su- it's done really well. It's very sweet and also funny. Like it's it's the long conversation they have about the future of their relationship, having like the kid Rocky, the dishwasher, yes. like at the at the hotel, have to translate for both of them is really funny. Like really that's fantastic. really well done. Yes, um, and I, I think that's like a really like nice that's a, a part of the film that really works well for me i mean i would say my complaints with this film aren't like major i don't dislike it it's just it doesn't have a lot of the things that i like about wes anderson films in it um which is what i think just that that sensibility that kind of like like diorama sense like you know not just visually the diorama sensibility but also that real kind of like handmade uh, quality kind yeah, of thing but like very tangible like kind of nostalgic melancholy that like he has always pursued mm-hmm. you know of my old sense of like uh looking back and feeling i don't know Wistful, lost. the wistfulness Wistful, yeah and i i i mean like i mean the ending certainly has that has i mean that's that, that. shot yeah, but, that know, slow-mo shot that, is all about yeah that. but i think beyond that it's just that i think what the thing that I don't like as much about this film is that in all of the subsequent films, you feel like you're looking at a coherent universe. You know what I mean? That like the kind of the odd choices of the characters or uh, of the design are all speak to this universe of the film, you mm-hmm. know, that Tilda Swinton's character in, uh, in Moonrise Kingdom is, is works for child services and she's child services. That's the name of her character, you know, and things like that, that are accepted that I think they work to a certain internal logic. I don't feel like that this film presents characters that are odd because the whole world is odd that it takes place in. I feel like it's kind of a story. It's a, it's a film about like quirky oddballs, you know, in a way that I don't feel about his other ones. Uh, and that's I, why I liked it. Yeah, and that's, that's why what I you're don't describing like it. is exactly why exactly. I liked it more. And that's because, why I don't like it as much because it was vaguely recognizable as a reality that I could right. see, you know, right. and that I didn't feel I was just watching a man film the inside of his own navel, you know, like that he <laughs> wasn't just a guy just digging deeper and deeper into his quirks in a way that feels very like. What it's interesting is that you and many people, you know, I'm in the minority on this, but that he, you really enjoy like returning to that world. It's similar but different each time, but that Wes Anderson feel. Yeah. You know, you like the familiar quality of it. You like the idea that, uh, you know, he has this very distinct sensibility. Whereas to me, it's like I enjoyed it for a while, but then it just began to feel a little stale to me. And I just don't feel like he's mixed it up and brought enough difference to it obviously great directors are going to rework the same themes over and over but um a lot of times i've just feel like he's you know recycling a bit too much here i felt like i was seeing while they were quirky and strange and like i said i couldn't quite understand exactly why they were doing what they're doing they felt almost like real people which was nice because i don't often feel that when i watch his movies i feel like i'm there's no connection to reality in in some cases and they're they're not real at all so to me it was it was refreshing to say i could almost imagine meeting these people in real life that to me felt like a, an improvement over many of his movies i i mean i can appreciate that but i think that's it speaks to that larger sense of being like if the world he's creating is not that appealing for you in later films then yeah there's no or, hope for me. Well, or just that 
he's not working for you. Yeah. It's fine. So what are what were the odds that I, when this would be over, I would like bottle rocket more than you? I don't know. Not very I'm good. Surprised. We have surprised people, I yeah. guess. All right. Well, that film is Bottle Rocket. It, it's available on Crackle. And actually, it's also available now on Netflix Watch Instantly. In the interim between episodes, they actually added it to Netflix. So you can watch it on Netflix or you can watch it on Crackle. That brings us to Behind the Eight Ball, in which we give you a rapid fire countdown of three picks that are new to streaming, two that are expiring soon, and one pick chosen blindly by number from our Netflix queues. Matt, you're up first. I'm ready to go, Allison. All right. Three new films. First up is Casa de Mi Padre, and that is available on Netflix. Will Ferrell makes a not funny movie in Spanish as a joke. (laughs) It's about as funny as it sounds. It's actually not very funny. I didn't love this movie, but I did think it was a very interesting experiment, and I sort of admire the boldness of it and the lunacy of it. It's a great uh, boondoggle, if nothing else. And so, uh, you know, if you have Netflix, it's worth checking out. So Casa de Mi Padre. Uh, A much better movie, Hugo, the Martin Scorsese film, is also available now on Netflix. His tribute to the origins of cinema and magic and just a a wonderful, wonderful movie. I haven't seen it not in 3D. I actually like the 3D in Hugo. I'd be curious to see how it plays at home. It was a great movie to see on the big screen. We'll have to see how it holds up on the small screen. And last, I've got Harold and Maude. I mentioned a Hal Ashby movie on last episode. Here's another one. His uh, is it his most famous film? I would say it, at this it point is. it probably yeah. is. Yeah, it's also available on Netflix. The classic um, May December or like, like super late <laughs> March December March December <laughs> March December romance. It's it's kind of like a Wes Anderson movie, uh, a, a early your early uh, ancestor or some prehistoric ancestor of a Wes Anderson movie. It's quirky. It's funny. It's sad. It's whimsical. It's melancholy. Amazing Cat Stevens music. If you've never seen it, it is a pretty special film. And that's Harold and Maude. And all three of those movies are available on Netflix. Okay. Two expiring films. Uh, both of these titles are expiring on December 1st. So you'll have a little bit of time to see them before they go. You've got Another Woman, one of Woody Allen's quote unquote serious movies from the 1980s, but one of his better ones, I think. And you've also got Insomnia, the Christopher Nolan film. I think we'd probably agree it's our least favorite Christopher Nolan film, but an interesting one. And if you're a Christopher Nolan uh, fan or if you've seen his later movies, it has some interesting resonance with some of his later movies. He's working through similar themes, even if we don't necessarily love the movie. Insomnia, also expiring on December 1st on Netflix. Okay, and one from your queue. You gave me number 17, which this week is Troll Hunter. It's a Norwegian found footage movie about a bunch of kids. They are making a, a documentary about, I believe, a, a they think they're making a documentary about a, like a bear poacher, but he turns out to be a troll hunter. And I'm sure wacky hijinks ensue from there. Allison, I haven't seen it. Have you seen Troll Hunter? I have not, All but right. I've heard it's really Yeah, it's fun. supposed to be great. I, I haven't had a chance to actually check it out yet. So Troll Hunter, that was my random title. Okay. Are you ready yes. for your own Countdown, you're behind the eight ball countdown. Here we go. Let's hear three new releases. Okay, my first pick is Gates of Heaven, the 1978 Errol Morris film. It is new on Hulu. This is the first documentary that Errol Morris made. It was uh, it ended it it ended a bet with Werner Herzog in which Werner Herzog ate his shoe after Morris actually finished this project. It is um, it very consistent with his his work that followed very interview based and uh explores this topic of pet burial grounds but um 
many other themes in it. It's a pretty wonderful movie. And if you have any interest in Errol Morris as a, as a filmmaker at all, it's, it's very interesting to see as kind of the start of his career. So that is Gates of Heaven on Hulu. Reanimator is new on Netflix, the mm. 1985 Stuart Gordon cult favorite about a man who figures out how to reanimate the dead and, uh, and all kinds of terrible hijinks. Ensue. More hijinks. There's a lot of hijinks on yes, Behind the Eight Ball this week. There's a lot of hijinks. Okay. Um, and that is on Netflix. And the last, my last new pick is Flowers of War, uh, which is also new to Netflix from uh, Jang Yimou, who, did, of course, raised the Red Lantern, Hero, Judo. It's his film revisiting the 1937 Nan, uh, Nanjing Massacre, which is uh, still a fairly, I, don't, I think, like underexplored, terrible aspect of World War II. No, uh, hi- no hijinks in this no one. No hijinks in this no. one. Stars Christian Bale, technically. The Christian Bale is kind of there as like a Western name to appeal to, to broader audience. Okay. As an undertaker who takes refuge in a Catholic church that's a school for girls as a city is being attacked. Uh, but it, it's really about um, how a, a group of prostitutes arrives to take uh, sanctuary at the church as well. I, I like this one a lot, actually. Um, that's Flowers of War. It is new on Netflix. Okay. Two expiring titles. Two expiring titles. First is uh, Bangkok Dangerous, expiring from Netflix on November 30th. There's not, alas, the Nicolas Cage version. Oh. I know. This is the original one that was uh, the, that, that film was based on. It's by the same pair of the directors, the Pang Brothers. Um, this is a very stylish Thai movie about a, a deaf-mute assassin. Hijinks? Um, not really hijinks film. Uh. Probably. I have not seen the Nicolas Cage version. But More hijinks than the Cage version? hijinks. Intentional and unintentional hijinks. <laughs> Jinx are probably in the in the Nicolas Cage okay. version, and uh, expiring December first off of Crackle is District Nine, which is Neil Blomkamp's uh, very interesting film about aliens in Johannesburg that has all kinds of interesting, um, you know, metaphors, metaphors, symbolism, you know, yes, apartheid, aliens, and also has a great use racism. of racism, um, yeah, kind of integrating I-jinx. special effects Sorry. into a kind of gritty handheld cameras that yes. in a really great way. Yes. So that is District Nine expiring off of Crackle. All right, and one random film from your queue. Uh, you gave me number seventy-one. That is Everlasting Moments, 2008 Swedish film mm. from uh, Jan Troll, I think is his name, uh, about a working class woman in the early 20th century, wins a camera in a competition, and she goes on to be a photographer, and it becomes this kind of like life-affirming uh, thing for her as she has this very difficult relationship with her husband. I've heard really wonderful things I think about Armand this. Armand White was a huge fan of it. And you know he likes very few things. He's got, yes, our, my taste in his usually sync up. So, <laughs> so that's Everlasting Moments. Uh, that is on Netflix. All right, it's time to get to next episode's listener's choice options. Allison, I think you are starting with our first possibility. All what right. is it? Yes, all three of our possibilities are this this week. They are um, all for rent on iTunes. Yes. It's getting towards the end of the year. Yes. We have some catching up to do on new yes. releases. So, you know, forgive us if you're really looking for another Netflix pick or something right now. These are all for rent. But, yes. You know. And whatever we end up picking, we'll have plenty of Netflix recommendations during right. cue shots and, and uh, behind the eight ball. But yeah, we, we have to catch up with some of these movies that are going to wind up on a lot of top 10 lists, and we need to see whether they should be on our own. So what's the first one? The first one is The Imposter. This is a documentary directed by Bart Layton. It's about a 1997 case in which a man turned up claiming to be a Texas boy who'd been, uh, who'd been kidnapped or disappeared at age 13 in 1994. The family accepts him at first, even though he's seven years older, has an accent, has brown eyes and hair instead of blonde <laughs> hair and blue eyes. Yeah. And the film 
explores this, how it happened, the kind of con man behind it, and also like other twists as it goes along. It's a highly acclaimed documentary. I'm really excited to see it. So uh, yeah. I've heard nothing but good things about it. This is definitely going to be a contender for best documentary of the year. I think it could make some top 10 lists. I missed it too. I've yeah. heard nothing but great things. Really looking forward to checking it out. So yeah, that would be a good pick, definitely. Our next choice, also available on iTunes for Rent, uh, is Paranorman, directed by Sam Fell and Chris Butler. It's a stop-motion animation film from the same studio that made The Lovely Coraline, which I know I was a big fan oh, of. Oh, it was great. Yeah, it's a great film. The, different director, but same studio. It's a uh, story about a young boy named Norman who can speak to the dead who gets mixed up in a zombie invasion of his hometown. And this is another one that I think is going to be in the mix for end-of-the-year stuff. I think Best Animated Feature, it's going to get a lot of votes for that. It was another film that I saw nothing but really high praise for, and I missed. I didn't get a chance to check it out. Uh, I think it actually could wind up on some top ten lists as well. Uh, I heard nothing but great things about it, and I missed it. I'm really looking forward to seeing that one as well. So that's Paranorman, and that's available on iTunes. Our last pick is one I've heard less about, but uh, good things I, you know, all around anyway. It's uh, Save the Dates, directed by Michael Mohan. Uh, it's a great cast. It stars Lizzie Kaplan as a woman who breaks up with her boyfriend, uh, played by Jeffrey Arend, after he proposes to her. Uh, and meanwhile, her sister, played by Alison Brie, is um, preparing to get married to the guy's bandmate, who is played by Martin Starr of Freaks and Geeks. Uh, and so, and then meanwhile, Lizzie Kaplan's character starts uh, this rebound romance with uh, a guy played by Mark Weber, uh, an actor and filmmaker. And so it's kind of about commitment issues, dating, romance. Uh, mostly I'm really excited to see all these actors who I like a lot uh, together. So that's Save the Date, and that's also on iTunes. And we should also say that Save the Date and Paranorman are also available on VOD. So if you've got cable, you can watch those on demand as well. Okay, so which of those three movies should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit? Send your pick to svu at filmspottingsvu.com or enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, November 26th at noon. After that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, twitter.com slash filmspottingsvu, and you will have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on our next episode, which will be on or around Monday, December 3rd. FilmSpottingSVU.com is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discussed on the episode. FilmSpottingSVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. Listen to more of Vince's work at VinceVandal.com. And we'll be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the movie review you pick. In the meantime, you can follow me and Matt on Twitter at at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. And you can also follow the show at FilmSpottingSVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share more streaming suggestions from SVU listeners. For Film Spotting SVU, I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>